Let's come back together, find our seats. A couple reminders. If you have your, your baby bottles for Horizon Pregnancy Clinic, we have a table right out in the lobby. We're collecting those today. If you didn't bring it today, bring it next week. And even if they're empty, bring those because they reuse those. But what a great way we have been able to support Horizon and the important work that they do there. Anyone cook here? I assume most of you eat, so someone's got to cook in the, in the households, unless you just eat out all the time. Does it make a difference what ingredients you use when you're following a recipe? No? Yeah? Apparently there's a difference between baking soda and baking powder. I don't know. Anyone ever mix those up? Changes the whole thing. Uh, cookies can go flat or whatever that can be. Um, I remember one time we, uh, we, when I was in the college group here, which was, you know, 10 years ago, and um, we were making pizza, and we were making pizza dough, and we, we were trying to expand the recipe, and one of the ingredients, and I don't know which one, but one of the ingredients got way off, and we ended up with enough for like 20 pizzas of this stuff because it just wasn't right, so we kept adding the other ingredients and adding the other ingredients to try to get that mix right, and it was a mess, but... but when we think of recipes, we, we understand ingredients. And so I'm using that as a metaphor to come into to 1 Thessalonians because Paul here is going to begin to commend them about a life that they are living that's pleasing to God and what a life pleasing to God looks like. And today he's going to start by, by listing some ingredients or some, some elements that they have, that they have proven themselves to have that he is thankful for because those represent a life following God. Now, if you remember where we were at with First Thessalonians and some of the history last week, First Thessalonians was a, a church or it's a book to a church that Paul started on his second missionary journey. And he was going through Asia Minor, and he came to Thessalonica, started that church, spent three weeks in the synagogues on Saturdays, and then probably a little bit more time after the, he was rejected in the synagogues, working in town and starting the church. But all in all, maybe four to six weeks there, we estimate. And then he was run out of town by the Jewish leaders that were there. They're like, no, he's getting too many followers. He's encroaching on our power. And so he was run out of town. And, and he had to leave after just barely starting this church. And we talked last week about, well, what would you pass on if you only had six weeks to pass on everything someone needed to know to walk with God? Now, how do you do that? Everything you need to know to start a church and to have a thriving church. And he's run out that he goes to Bria and then the same guys find out he's in Bria, chase him there. And he ends up down eventually in Corinth where he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, says, I care about this church. I started, I had to leave. They probably think I abandoned them. I care about them. Go and find out how they're doing and get back with me. And First Thessalonians was written upon Timothy's return. And he gets a report of how the church is doing. And, and the first thing we're going to see as we look at the greeting in verses 2 through 5 today is the church is doing well. The church is doing well, and so Paul has some things he wants to say to the church. And so this morning, as we look at this introduction, I want to look at what the church was doing well. What Paul commends them for, because that begins our list of ingredients for what it means to start well, what it means to be a church after God's heart and a people after God's heart. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one under a seat right around you. Grab one of those, turn to 1 Thessalonians. 
because um, we want you to we want to all be on the same page in studying what God's word has to say. First Thessalonians chapter one. We're going to hit two through the first half of five today. Just part of the introduction. This this book has a long introduction. And when you're reading epistles, reading books of the Bible, don't skip the introductions. This isn't just, oh, he knew them, something personal for them. Paul almost always gives a summary of what he wants to talk about in the book in the introduction. And he sets the tone for the book in the introduction. And so we, we have some powerful bullet points of what he's going to be talking about in this introduction. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 5. I'd like to just read it all the way through, and then we'll break it apart, starting at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so he begins his introduction. Next week, we'll look at the second half of his greeting as he goes a little bit of a different direction. He begins his introduction by sharing his heart. And in right in verse 2, don't we see Paul's heart for them? We give thanks to you, to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And the we and the our is, remember, it's Timothy and Silas are with him, and they're writing this together because they're all concerned for the church. And we see Paul's ministry heart, a heart that is concerned about people that he ministers to, that cares about them. And so he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Those are actually pretty key words that aren't always in his greetings. But it really looks like the, the tone of the church was just really healthy and really positive. You didn't have a, a faction group that he's like, well, I can give thanks to God for some of you. No, he gave thanks to God for all of them. And so we, we get an insight into the health of the church right from the first verse, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And this isn't just, oh, you know, every now and then I throw up a quickie for you. I think about you. I say I'm praying for you and then maybe think about it right before I see you again. No, no, he's constantly praying for them. He has a heart of a father and a mother for them. And we're going to see later in First Thessalonians. And he's thankful for them. He's thankful for their consistent walk with God. He's thankful for the things that he's about to expand on in the next few verses. And, and, and I love this, that we get just a glimpse into his relationship with them. The Thessalonians were, were a people that responded well to the gospel, that responded well to his teaching. They were a people that he could be thankful for. You know, the, the saying goes, some people light up a room when they come in and some people light up a room when they leave. These were the type of people that lit up the room when they came in. This was the kind of relationship that they had. And so why is he thankful? And that's where we get into some of these ingredients to starting well, because they, they, they just started as a church. This is just a few months after they started, and they're in the middle of persecution. The same people that ran Paul out of two cities are still living there. And so now, verses 3 on, Paul commends them. He commends them for what they're doing well. He commends them before God our Father and, and tells them what he prays about them. And so in verse 3, we see, Remembering before God our Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I'll just give you a little hint on your notes. Those are your next three points on your notes. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. And so point number one, first ingredient that Paul says, let's start with works flowing from faith or actions flowing from faith. And he said, he uses the phrase, your work of faith here. And, and the idea of that, the work of faith is the work from faith or the work that flows from faith. Think James. We just studied James, right? And James, we talked about putting faith into action and that faith without action is dead. That's exactly what Paul is referencing here is this idea that true faith should always result in action. It should result in something. And, and people would have, would have looked at this and said, okay, faith, love, and hope. We understand what those are. And those were the, this triad, this summary of virtues that was often used to summarize what it meant to walk with God. Paul uses it in Romans and in Colossians and in Hebrews and in Galatians and 1 Peter. The early church, they would often say faith, hope, and love. And faith representing loving God and your relationship with God. Love representing our relationship with each other. Hope, what we're looking forward to. And so Paul is using those same three here, and he starts with faith, but on each of them he adds a particular action. Your works of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. So he's taking this common idea and he's expanding it, and he's saying this is what you're doing well. And these are part of what it means to please God and walk with God. And so he starts with these essential ingredients and says your, your works of faith, your actions of faith. And, and when we think of that, don't think of earning your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He, did, he does not say works that lead to faith. It really is more faith that leads to works. And, and so the wording there is, is flows from or comes out of. One author said, it really is saying that faith is to be a lifestyle. Faith should affect how we act. And, and we've spent a lot of time in James talking about it. But that's true, right? What we love, what we focus on affects our actions. This this week, I posted a meme online about how the five love languages applies to Dr. Pepper, right? And, you know, gift giving when someone gives you an ice cold Dr. Pepper and acts of service when they open the ice cold Dr. Pepper for you and, and all that. Now, nobody on my meme responded by saying, I am shocked that you like Dr. Pepper. Not one person. Why? You know I like Dr. Pepper by my actions, by what I've posted, by what I've said, okay? So that's just a given. You know, I could go around to sports teams for some of you, and we just know who you like, and we're happy for some of you and not so happy for others. And, but, but we know you because what we like, what our, where our heart is, affects our actions. And Paul is bringing that right up from the start. He says, I commend you for your actions that have flown from your, that have flown, that have, have come sprung from your faith, that have flowed from your faith. True faith always works. Now that is amazing to say after only a few months of this church hearing the gospel, accepting Christ, and and founding as a church. And six months later, Paul is able to say, I thank God for your actions that come from your faith, for your lifestyle. This is what you're known for, is your faith. And I think about that. If we're sold out for God, if we're sold out and amazed at His grace, if we are blown away that He has forgiven our sins, if we've experienced that, that will come out in our actions. Just like everything else we do. 
And the question we have to ask ourselves is, as people look at my actions, can they see my heart? As people look at what I do, can they see my heart and and where my allegiances are, where my priorities are? Or if I was to tell people at work or in my neighborhood that I'm a Christian, would they be surprised? Would they be even aware? See, as believers, what... One of the essentials of pleasing God is our faith affects our actions so much that people can't help but say, but know that we're believers. That there is something different about us. And we talk about that a lot, but there is something unique that the person says, I know that Phil loves God. Or, or I know that Joe loves God. Or, and, and on and on. And whether they agree with it or not, do our actions show a lifestyle that is flowing from faith? And that's the question we have to ask. Because I love God, because I follow God, I will dot, 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 fill in the blank. How does that change things? You know, we, we think of priorities. And if we think about um, our, our faith and our love for God, that should show as a priority over everything else, over everything, even what we do with our free time, our entertainment, or fun. When we ask ourselves the question, what should I do today? I have the afternoon off. Do our first thoughts go to, how can I just just blow the day away and have fun? Or do we even think, how can I do something harder but that will change lives? How can I do something that will please God? And, And we know that God is looking for us to live out our faith in a way that constantly pleases Him. In Galatians 5, 6, he talks about faith and works and love actually there. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Your, your status, that, that doesn't matter. What counts, but only faith working through love. Faith has to make a, a difference and show in our actions. James one twenty seven, verse we, we studied recently talks about faith and actions and just gets real practical. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So Paul's commendation to them is your actions show that your faith, your faith, your actions show that you're believers, that you love Jesus. And that is amazing in a city where their actions in that way, that, that show that they love Jesus could get them in deep trouble. You know, so, so what does this look life in, like in life? It means asking questions of pri- our priorities. It means asking questions of how I should spend my time. I think of how, how does it look in families? If you have kids, do your kids, no matter how young, because this starts at, at infant, do your kids, no matter how long, young, see a priority on serving? Do they see a priority on works that flow from faith? Do they see the connection there? Because if they don't, that's one of the sure signs that your faith won't be passed on. When we talk about passing on your faith as parents, and that's near and dear all of our hearts, they have to see a connection between our actions and our choices and what we say we believe about God. And so do they see us helping others? Do they see us serving in the church? Do they see us caring for the lost and praying for our neighbors? Do they see us being hospitable to those we don't know, not just to the circle of friends that we love? See, faith comes out in our actions, in our works. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says work of faith. 
You know, sometimes we need to reassess what our time says about our priorities. Sometimes we need to shift that a little bit. When, when we think, and you guys have heard me talk about the circle and something I call the circle, if we, if we think of life as a circle and, and our primary goal is the kingdom, to, to serve God, to please God, we find in First Thessalonians, does everything else fit within that goal? Or do we have, yeah, I'm to please God, but then I have this area of my life over here that sort of helps please God, but, but you know, a little bit of overlap, but, you know, there's other priorities. Or, or do we have family here that takes priority over serving church family? Or do we have careers that we are giving up our, our own families for because we're so obsessed with finances and money and being successful? No, the question is, does this please God? And I've got to say, if we, if we ask that about everything we do, we probably solve all the other questions. If I say, does my career please God? It's going to come in line and be in balance where I'm a good father and taking care of my family. It's going to come in line and say, I'm able to minister in the church. Everything we do, does it please God? Does it fit within that? You know, as I think of village, I am thankful for village. I am thankful because so many of you have chosen to take the path of works flowing from your faith. I'm thankful for your hands at outreach, for all of the the hands and arms and lifting and serving that happens at Second Harvest, for the hundred people that help with living nativity just so people in our neighborhood can hear the gospel. When I think of Project Touch and hitting 445 homes in our neighborhood with the gospel, Village, that is works flowing from your faith. Thank you for that. I love your study and love of God's Word and how important that is and your fervent prayer, not just for personal things, but your commitment to pray for the church and your commitment to pray for the, the, our missionaries and the persecuted church and the lost. I thank you for so many of you that are involved in ministry, an incredibly high percentage that are involved in ministry including hidden ones like cleaning up around the campus on Sunday morning before any of us get here, or nursery or preschool or or maintenance, including all of those as well as the most visible ministries, you guys are serving well. And I commend you for that because that is work that flows from your faith. Thank you. And so I echo Paul's sentiment to to the Thessalonians. Faith that, that shows itself and works. The next ingredient that Paul mentions is labor of love. Labor of love. And this is one where we use that phrase sometimes, right? Labor of love. You know, we did something nice for someone. I got you a box of chocolates. It was just a labor of love. Or, you know, I I, I wrote you a note. It was a labor of love. Let's just, right up front, that is not the way that Paul is using the phrase. Okay? That might be the, and, and I bring that up because I think we can have a light view of the phrase labor of love, and Paul's view was not a light view. He's, he's telling us to love others. He's saying that, that we should be committed to loving others, but here's the word. He uses a different word for labor here than he does for the works of, of, of faith. <clears throat> this word means labor that is a toil, that is a hardship, that is uncomfortable, that is difficult the kind of labor that produces fatigue or exhaustion. Now, if I say labor of love, doesn't that have a whole different meaning? This means a sacrificial love that 
is to the point of exhaustion and fatigue where we are so committed to loving others that nothing will stop us. It means loving someone and acting on that love even when it's uncomfortable and hard and even when we don't like that person. Because in a group this size, there are people that annoy us probably. Not me. But (laughs) we might get on each other's nerves sometimes. We're a family. That happens. And Paul says, no, an essential ingredient for pleasing God, for walking with God, what this church has done so well to start is they have labored at love. They have toiled at it. They have given it their all no matter what, even if the person deserves it or doesn't deserve it. The word for love here, as you would guess, is agape. It's the selfless love, unconditional, not expecting anything back. It's love that acts whether or not it feels like acting. Catch that, because that will transform how we love each other. It'll transform your marriages. Love that acts whether or not it feels like acting. That is the phrase, that is the idea that Paul is giving here. So it's selfless acts, sometimes hard acts. Acts to show love to others, whether deserved or or not. It means readjusting our schedules if someone needs something. It means going out of our way to love someone rather than just doing it in the process of ordinary life. That is the wording that Paul uses here. Labor of love. And I love it. I love it. And so the question I have to ask myself and we should all ask ourselves is how are we doing at genuinely loving others, including those that are hard to love? How am I doing at going beyond myself to personal discomfort and inconvenience to love others? And we've all gotten the call from someone that says, hey, I need someone, or I just need to talk, or can you come over and give me a ride? And we're like, no, I'm busy. I, I, I was going to watch NCIS. And um, <laughs> we, we have our plans and we know what we're doing, and this is the kind of love that is willing to just throw all those out the window to actually show that we love each other. We might say, well... That person said some things to me on Sunday. That person is living in a way that they don't deserve my love. You know what? Agape love loves anyway. Why? Because God did for us. Because God loved me when I was that way. In fact, God's word says that he loved me while I was still an enemy of Christ, while I was still a sinner. And so we, 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 If we're going to get to this kind of love, we've got to start practicing loving people like Jesus does, but looking at people like Jesus loves. Every person in this room is a person that Jesus loved enough to die on the cross for and to be tortured for. Every person in this room is a person that God loves as potential children of God. And if you've accepted him as children of God, And so I have to start looking around and every person I choose whether or not to love, I have to realize Jesus already does. And if I choose not to, I'm really countering what Jesus has already chosen to do. That helps me get past the petty things. That helps me get past the the comments that are hurtful. That helps me get past so much and says, I'm going to love them anyway because Jesus gave us that example. But the labor part is how are we doing at sacrificial love? How are we doing it going above and beyond? 
One author wrote this question, and I wrote it down because it stung a little bit. What have you done for someone outside of your family out of pure love alone? What have you done for someone outside of your circle and you've done it just out of pure love, no motivation, nothing else, just for their benefit? It's a good question. Because we get busy, and in the hustle and bustle, we forget to do this one. But Jesus loves us. As we sang this morning, his love never runs out. His love was incredibly inconvenient on the cross. His love sought us while we still hated him. He is love. In 1 Peter 1, 21 and 22, we see several of these concepts brought back together. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so there's faith and hope, two out of the three in the triad. And then 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And there, in First Peter, we, we would, Peter is saying, well, love is coming from a faith and a hope in God. So he would put faith and, and hope first, and then love flows from that. Why are they connected? Faith, because our love has to come from God's love for us. We as human beings, we don't have a capacity to genuinely agape someone that we don't like. But because of Jesus, we can. The hope, if we realize our hope is in Christ and that's where our identity is and we know that he's coming back, oh, that frees us up to love without question. That frees us up to love even if the person doesn't respond to us. Even if they respond poorly to us, that frees us up because my, my hope is in Christ. I don't really care what you think. It's what God thinks and how I please him. So we don't have to worry about ourselves, our identity, our future. We can love without fear. Our foundation is in God. And so we see faith works, but then we see a labor of love to each other, how we apply that to each other. And they're connected. John connected them in 1 John 4.19 when he said, We love because He first loved us. Now, now, when we think of this, I also think in our culture, the idea of what it means to love each other has been so skewed. Because we think, or we see in our culture that loving each other is just giving each other what everyone wants. Or, you know, letting them do whatever they want. No, true love also confronts. True love, if I see one of my children running into the street and cars are, well, I guess they're older now, so we're doing a little better on that one. Um, <laughs> But if I see them heading for a disaster or going to the side of a cliff on a hike, that's happened, um, I'm going to yell and I'm going to stop them. If I see them in their life going down a path that I know Satan is taking them down, that I know is problematic, because I love them, I'm going to confront it, even if it's hard. And so certainly this idea of labor of love includes genuine love that lovingly approaches things because we're committed to the other's best interests. So two ingredients Paul's given so far. Works that flow out of faith. Labor, striving at love. And again, like I said, one of the reasons I chose 1 Thessalonians is because it it really fits you, village. And I'm thankful for your community. 
that you've created a family atmosphere that encourages that when people are sick, you take care of them and widows are in need, you take care of them. You have done wonderful at at helping and coming alongside each other. Let's keep going with that. Let's make sure that that's part of our DNA and who we are. See, if we've been touched by God's love, we will show it. If we love God, we will love others. The next ingredient he mentions there in verse 3, uh, the, the last of the triad, is steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness of hope. And this is the next ingredient in the recipe. And he says, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the wording there is very helpful because hope, we think of wishing and hoping and, oh, I hope this happens and I hope I have this someday. And, and Hope in God's Word is a confident expectation based in the, the idea of who God is. It's a confident expectation that I know this is coming so I can eagerly look forward to it. And here, Paul is using words that say, because of that confident expectation, I can be steadfast. I can endure. I can, I can keep working and I can keep going for the long run. The word can be translated endurance, and in some translations it is. Endurance through difficulties or trials or persecution. So we have the works that come from faith. Then we're to love each other sacrificially. And this one says, now keep doing it no matter what happens because God will help you. Do you see how the, the three work together? And these are ingredients to, to starting well as a church or as a believer. Ingredients to pleasing God. And so Paul is commending them because they haven't let anything steer them away from following God. They've stayed on the course no matter what has happened. Nothing should steer us away from serving God. No circumstances, no curveballs in life. We are still called to bring glory to God and serve Him no matter how easy life is or no matter how hard life is because our hope is in Christ. Our hope isn't here. Our hope isn't a perfect life here. My hope is in Christ and that I get to spend eternity with Him and this is all going to pass away and it is going to be good in relationship with Christ. You know, Paul knew something a little bit about steadfastness in trials or keeping on in trials. He only went through a couple shipwrecks. He only got stoned a bunch near death, maybe beaten every now and then, chased out. Yeah, Paul knew a little bit about this. And he says, I commend you for your steadfastness and hope. You know, it's the mom that continues training and loving and disciplining and corralling her children even when you wonder if little monsters have taken over. It's the dad that loves his family and is actively engaged even when his world is falling apart and things are going just nuts at work. Or maybe work is ending. And that dad that stays engaged no matter what, doing what God wants him to do, no matter what happens. It's the person that in the middle of hurt and grief turns to God rather than away from God, as can be a natural tendency, but rather turns to God for that hope, for that comfort. See, this isn't just a negative, sit there and be passive. This kind of hope is an active endurance, one that moves forward. Now, now the phrase there, this one has an extra phrase, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is going, this is foreshadowing a little bit of what he's going to talk about a lot in the book. But that phrase 
refers to a second coming. And so he's saying a lot of your hope, yes, it's salvation, but Jesus is coming back. And that's what he's reminding them of. Jesus is coming back. You don't have to worry about things here. And I think just three quick things we can think of when we think of Jesus coming back. The life here is not all there is. So it gives us an eternal perspective. The fact that we know Jesus is coming back also means nothing can spoil our future. Nothing can spoil our future. No matter what happens here, nothing can spoil our future. Third thing it reminds me of is that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful no matter what. And we sang the words, the work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, our living hope. The work is finished, the end is written. It's done, nothing can change it. That's the confident expectation we have. And Paul is is commending them because they have used their, their hope on that, their fixed eyes on that to get through some of the toughest times. Jesus is going to return, village. It's not in doubt. If we believe in him, we are going to spend eternity with him. And there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. We can, we can take that to the bank because we know that is what's going to happen. And that helps us get through anything that happens in this, this temporary life. Again, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the health of this church because as I've been praying for you and as we've seen this last year, there are so many personal trials happening across our church. I had someone talk to me a week ago. They said, I I just, it's just really odd how much Satan's attacking our church with all these trials. I'm like, yep. He'd love to distract us. He'd love to discourage us. He'd love to dissuade us from following Christ, from reaching our community for him, from standing firm for him. Thank you for being a healthy church that stands firm. That serves even when you're going through things. That loves Jesus and turns to Him for His hope. Really, what else is there hope in? What else does this world have to offer that is a better hope? Alcohol? Nope. Drugs? No. Sex? No. What what can help us through difficult times other than knowing our future is secure and Jesus is with us always? And Satan's going to try all kinds of weak substitutes. And they're just weak sauce. But Jesus is our hope. You have stood firm. Thank you. We get to the fourth ingredient, verses 4 and 5. And as we read it, it feels like a change in focus. But if you look at some of the, the, the wording and the way participles are used, it's actually another point in what he's commending them for. And so point number four, I say, finally, you know, the last thing in the recipe, put it all together with a confidence in God's adoption and love. Put all the ingredients together with a confidence in God's adoption and love. Verse four says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And these words, Paul Paul just takes each word and it's full of meaning. For we know, and he's looking for a confidence, an assurance here. We know, brothers, loved by God. And he uses this word. This is the first time in First Thessalonians he's used it. And he's going to use it 14 more times. So this is going to be a theme. 
But he's bringing in this idea of family and adoption into family, that every believer is adopted into family. We are brothers and sisters, and it can, it, it's inclusive of both. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys are my family. I'm your family. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and Paul's reminding them, we're family. And then he says, revel in this. Understand this. You are loved by God, and he has chosen you. And... and, and you're agape by God. It's the same word for love, except in this case, it's used in a different sense, a perfect participle. And it literally means you have been loved by God. You are being loved by God. You will always be loved by God. It's, it's pretty cool. The, the way that, that he's, he uses this. And he's reminding them, oh, God loves you. He loved you and drew you to himself. He loves you now. He will always love you. And then he says, brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. Think about that for a moment. Think about the encouragement that the omnipotent God chose you to be adopted into his family. This is a, this is a city of Gentiles. The word for chosen there is a word that was often used in the Old Testament to refer to the children of Israel. Okay, so they are God's chosen people, his elect people. And here we see God deliberately expanding that word to say, no, all believers are chosen. To a Gentile Christian, this is a statement, a beautiful statement of inclusion. This is giving them confidence. It's giving them assurance of God's adoption and love. The word for chosen there can be election, that he has elected us. Now, I know as soon as I say that, that the theology buffs here, you're in two camps and you're like, I don't know. Is it God's election or is it our choice? Uh-huh. I got news for you. God's word teaches both. It teaches both. We can't get around that this says God has chosen us. He has elected us. We, we, we will look at other, this is going to come up again. He has elected us from before the foundations of this world that he has chosen us. And, and that is exactly what this is saying. And we, we don't want to ignore this just because, oh, it's a hard doctrine to understand. But yet right before this, he talked about all the things we do and the, the personal responsibility throughout Scripture. Whenever the word believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or choose this day whom you will serve, we see choice throughout Scripture too. We must hold both, I would propose. And, and we hold them in attention because... Quite frankly, we're not God. And we can't understand this until we're in heaven. I don't know if we're going to understand everything about God once we're in heaven. We're going to be too enamored with worshiping him and too blown away by who he is to worry about election and choice. But the point is, God chose us. We are not accidentally in God's family. He chose us and drew us to to himself. And yes, we had to choose to believe in him. And we had to choose to have faith in him. How all that works, we could discuss. I'm not going to this morning because both are true and both are beautiful and both are taught by God's word. And we trust that God knows how to work it all out. Oh, if we can't trust that, we don't have much. But I love this idea of being chosen. I hated growing up being the last one picked. You have to understand, I was short and scrawny. I was always the shortest guy in the class, usually the slowest guy in the class. 
And I hated picking teams because I knew what that meant. Village, you're not picked last in Christ. You've been picked since the foundation of the world. He wants you to be his son or his daughter. And he will never unchoose you because that's not how election works or choosing works. We are forever secure. And so this is a statement of confidence. This is a statement of, of just Paul encouraging them in this and, and challenging them to enjoy this, to revel in this. Be glad that we are children of God. No parent wants to hear, I wish you weren't my parent. Probably every parent does hear that at some point, but it never feels good. It's never like, oh, do you know what my kids said to me today? They don't want me to be their father. Well, we're talking about pleasing God and God wants us to be pleased that we are his children. He wants us to enjoy that we are loved by God perfectly, that we are chosen by God. And then in verse five, the first half of verse five, Paul says, you know, this is how I know this to be true. This is what I've seen. This is the evidence that I've seen. First is because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he lists three things there. And, and, and he starts by saying it's not just words. And that's comforting for us as we share the gospel. We, it's, it's not based on our perfect presentation whether someone gets into heaven or not. It's whether the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts and convicting and they're allowing him to work in their hearts. And boy, that just takes a lot of the pressure off. But Paul is saying, I know this because our gospel didn't just come to you in word. It wasn't just us talking, but in power. It's the first thing he mentions. Possibly miracles along with some of the early church and some of the work of the apostles. But I think, I think more that we think of Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul saw change in their life. And when people genuinely come to Christ, when they follow Christ, it changes us. It, it, the power of life change is amazing. I've seen people changed out of addictions. I've seen people changed out of bitterness, out of being a slave to anger, out of self-centeredness. Those don't happen overnight. That's the power of the gospel, the power of God. And Paul's saying, I've seen this in you. I know that this is true. I know you're loved by God. I know you're believers because I've seen the power of change in your life. Secondly, I've seen the Holy Spirit coming to you and evidences of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And then the third thing he mentions is that it came with full conviction. A deep conviction, an assurance that this is true. And so he watched them grab onto the gospel and and give their lives to it and and know that it's true. They watched the Holy Spirit enter their lives and, and the power of the gospel changed them. And so the fourth thing that that is an essential ingredient in this recipe that Paul commends is the confidence of God's adoption and love. He's like, enjoy it. You want to please God? Enjoy that He saved you. Love it. Be amazed by it. Just as we close, I I want to give, if you turn the page over, some quick principles of ministry. And these are just sort of a... um, I mentioned this last week as a sub-theme of 1 Thessalonians. We can learn a lot from Paul's example. 
And a lot of these we've already talked about, so I didn't want to spend a lot of time on them, but I think that Paul is an incredible example for how we minister well as well. And so we, we saw ingredients of pleasing God and walking with God well. We also see examples of, okay, what do we do in ministry? How do we minister well to each other? And that applies to all of us in, in our different ministries at church as we reach out to people. And actually, I think by Paul's example, we could learn a lot about just leadership. And four things that we see, and we've covered them all already. In verse 2, we saw that Paul is committed to genuinely appreciating people. And telling them he appreciates them. Genuinely appreciate people and tell them. He says, I I thank God always for you. And he's telling them this. If we're to minister well and minister like Paul, we, we should be appreciating those around us, noticing what they've done. Second thing that we see Paul doing in ministry is he's praying for them in that same verse. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Ministry wasn't a job to Paul. It was family. And and he ministered well by praying diligently for them, constantly. It was a priority. He really did pray for them. He didn't just say it. Elsewhere in his writings, he talks about the pressure of the churches and he feels the weight of them and his struggle in prayer. And we see that ministry takes sacrifice in prayer. If you're to minister well, whether you're an Awana leader, a Sunday school teacher, no matter what you're doing, pray for those you're ministering to. If you're in leadership here, pray for those you're leading. It will change you. We see Paul also, the third principle there, he commends those he serves specifically and at every opportunity. I love the example of him telling them about their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. He's commending them. He appreciates them in point number one, but now he's being just very, very specific and letting them know where in their walk they're, they're doing well. That motivates them to do more. That motivates them to live up to the praise. And then finally, the fourth thing he did well here is he encouraged people by pointing them back to God and his work. In verses four and five, they might be wondering, am I really saved? Paul left, and there's all this, there's these trials. He's constantly encouraging people by pointing them back to God, not to him, but by pointing them back to God and his work. Again, we've talked about all these as we talk through the passage, but just four little um, ministry tips. And throughout First and, First and Second Thessalonians, I want to hit those at the end of a lot of sermons just to, to remind ourselves what we can learn from Paul as well as well as the the Thessalonians. Four essential ingredients to pleasing God. Works that flow out of our faith. Labor of love, working at love, striving to love each other no matter what. A hope that keeps us steadfast, that keeps us going, that keeps us continuing. And then just reveling in the fact that we are adopted sons and daughters of the King and that He loves us no matter what. That's what the Thessalonians were doing well. I pray that's what we're doing well, what we're focusing on. Those things will help us live lives that are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for choosing us, for adopting us, 
for bringing us into your family, Lord. I pray that you would help us to to really understand the full impact of what that means. And out of that faith in you would flow a lifestyle that people cannot mistake for anything other than that of a believer. That out of that would flow a love for each other that is beyond what we can do on our own, but is exhibiting your love, is, is modeled after your love for us. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be constant in our hope of the future in you, that that would keep us steadfast no matter what and and faithful to you no matter what our circumstances are. Lord, thank you for these commendations. I pray that we would be that kind of church that starts well, that lives for you, that pleases you. In your name, amen.